preaching is not an art form in which we're looking for a performance by the man up front. Preaching is bearing a message from the Most High God to you and teaching you. And to a certain degree, when a man's fearful, when he gets before a congregation, he's thinking more about his performance than he is the word that he has to bear. Because if he thinks about the word he has to bear, there is no reason for fear because he's bearing the greatest message on earth. And yet, the Apostle Paul would say, he was with the Corinthians in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So there's comfort in the word of God. But this morning, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to preach a simple and relatively short message to you before we have our covenant signing this morning, but it will be profoundly deep if you have a spiritual eye. And I have prayed and am praying that every one of you will find it profoundly deep, although simple. And the gospel is simple, but it is profoundly deep. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. This morning I want to teach you from the Lord a few things about His church. We call ourselves a church. As a church, we're about to make a decision this day. And I want us to be reminded from the Lord as to what He thinks of His church and what His church is. And what his church should be. And I hope that I can lift it up before you today that you'll rejoice. That you have a church. That you're in a church. And that the Lord's in the church. In 1 Kings chapter 8 we have one of the most glorious descriptions in all the word of God about the worship of God. David spent a good portion of his life gathering materials to build the temple for the house of God, but the Lord wouldn't let him build the temple. The Lord gave him a son named Solomon, and Solomon built the temple. And Solomon spent a great deal of his career gathering more materials and finding the craftsmen that would build this glorious temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we have a record of the Ark of the Covenant being transported from the tabernacle into this permanent dwelling place for the Most High God. And it is one, I can't read it, I'm just reminding you of what First Kings 8 is about. Can't read the whole thing. Love to read it. It includes his dedicatory prayer that is fabulous as he lifts up the Most High. But as these priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant on its staves to the temple, Solomon and the priests are offering sacrifices as fast as they can in front of it. And the Word of God says, without number. Now, when I read that in the context of 1 Kings 8, I believe that's a big number. Because it tells us a number that he offered after his prayer. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. But he offered without number. As this Ark of the Covenant made its way to the temple. And when he gets to the temple and puts it in its holy of holies in the innermost compartment of that great temple, 
He then offers up a prayer, and I want to read a few words of that prayer to you, beginning at verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is a prayer as worthy as man can utter of the Most High God, because God gave him eloquence and wisdom compared to no man except his own son, Jesus Christ. 1 Kings 8.12, Then spake Solomon, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build an house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build an house unto my name, thou didst well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house. But thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake. And I am risen up in the room of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But then he says this in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. May the Lord bless the reading of this passage. Solomon acknowledges that God had kept his word, raised up a son to David to build a house for the Lord God. But then he must say, though it was the most glorious house Israel could build, remember God had blessed them abundantly to have gold and silver in abundance. And yet Solomon had to say, how in the world can the Lord God of heaven dwell on earth and in this house that I have builded? And today I want you to ask yourself, Though it might have been wonderful to have been there in the presence of Solomon and to have witnessed such sacrifices being made, fire falling from heaven to suck up those sacrifices, to have seen the glory of the Lord fill the temple so much that the priests could not minister. That's how glorious it was. And it would have been wonderful to have been there, but can't you ask yourself that it still was not worthy of the Lord God? It still was not a house worthy of his name. Now come over in your Bibles to first, the first chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. One of the things, one of the simple points of the gospel that I am impressed with this morning and I want to impress you with is that the Lord God has not changed. Right. He is the same God as the God of Solomon. Amen. He is no less glorious. Amen. Not at all. Now, that was the Old Testament. 
When I say the Old Testament, there isn't that much difference between the Old and the New, apart from Jesus Christ, for it is the same God. We just have a permanent sacrifice made for our sins. So it is called an Old Covenant and a New Covenant, but they worship the same God as we're worshiping in the New Testament. Let me read to you a few verses from Revelation chapter 1. Let me remind you that the man writing these verses is a man that lay on the bosom of Jesus of Nazareth. But he's going to witness that Jesus of Nazareth glorified. I'm going to take up in verse 10. He is on the Isle of Patmos because he was put there as a judgment for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 we read, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And let me stop and say, I hope that's true of all of us right now. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. But John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And... What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. May the Lord bless a New Testament reading of his word and a description of the Lord God of the New Testament. The same being, except now in the person of the man, Christ Jesus. John saw him, recognized him as the son of man, but what a glorious sight he was. John fell at his feet as dead. The man who had rested on his bosom fell at his feet as dead. Now there's a mystery here. Seven stars and seven candlesticks. 
But like many of the mysteries of the Word of God, if we read the whole Word of God, we find out what the mystery is. Amen. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches of Asia. And who are those angels? But the pastors of those seven churches. Amen. So in God's right hand, there were seven stars representing the seven pastors, bishops, of his seven congregations in Asia. He only picked seven as a complete number to represent all of his churches and all of his ministers. And the seven golden candlesticks that John saw are the seven spirits of God, chapter 3, verse 1, that Jesus Christ walks among, which represent his seven churches. That is a picture that is, this is the word of the Lord from Jesus Christ to you this day. If it is anything less than this, then preaching is vain, and your hearing is vain. This is the word of the Lord to you. This is a picture that he wants us to have in our heads, and in our hearts, and in our minds, of his glory, and how he treats his churches. You see the picture of the Son of God, and you see him walking among those seven candlesticks. And brethren, you know what we could read on further we can read that he can walk over to one of those candlesticks and snuff out its flame and withdraw that spirit from that church and leave it the congregation of the dead. Amen. He can also walk around that candlestick and grant it his presence and come to that church and knock at its door according to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 and ask for entrance. And I ask for you and I tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ this day, to forget that Catholic piece of art that you have seen in hospitals and waiting rooms and in some of your homes of that effeminate, long-haired, hippie Jesus knocking at some wooden door. I want you to see this Jesus because I represent him, and he wants you to see him as he is right here. Amen. This is the Jesus that wants entrance. I don't want the other one. Amen. I want this one. Amen. And I want him in this assembly with me. Amen. And I want to be held in his right hand. How important is the church? Just keep waiting. When John gets to see a vision of heaven, he sees the Son of Man walking among seven golden candlesticks. And what are those seven golden candlesticks? The Church of Greenville is one of those seven golden candlesticks. And the Son of Man is walking around it. May God be praised. And may you have ears to hear and hearts to understand. When we use the word church, it means a congregation, Amen. which is a group of people. We can prove that from the word of God, which we've proved it so many times before that all of you knew that already. Churches can assemble formally, formally in one place. Sometimes even the building's called a church. But I want to make a point this morning. God doesn't care about buildings. Amen. And though we're meeting here in a hotel meeting room, that doesn't bother the Most High at all. Amen. Because it's where His people that He has chosen, who love Him, are assembled that He meets. Amen. And it's actually good for us to have this meeting room because it keeps our focus on the right thing. Amen. You'd be surprised, no matter how good your heart might be, to have a building, there is a subconscious evil tendency to think of the building as the church. And it isn't. Most everyone else in Greenville County this morning thinks that way. They'll spend half of their service raising more money to build their building greater. We don't need to be spending our time building a building in that sense. 
We need to be spending our time building a building in the sense I want to give you today. Because that Son of Man is looking for a permanent dwelling place on earth with us. You know, in the Old Testament, the congregation of Israel was a church. I ask you again, the Roman Catholic Church is called the mother of abominations of the earth because I have to make war against your minds, even in the use of the word church. Because when I say church, do you know what springs to your mind? A building. If I say, picture a church in your mind, you have a building probably still with a steeple on it. Because Rome has done that to us. But a church is a group of saints, maybe, meeting underneath the streets of Rome in the catacombs in the dark with a couple of candles worshiping God. And I want to tell you something. The Son of Man was there. And Caesar is no contest for the Son of Man. But the Son of Man chose to meet with those saints in those salt catacombs below the city of Rome. And today he chooses to meet in this hotel meeting room. And I am his servant. And I am telling you from him that he wants to meet and assemble with you and he wants you to be his church. We often look at the Old Testament and wish that we could have been part of that congregation to have seen the Lord operating close at hand. When I get done this morning in just a few minutes, it's not going to be that long, I'm going to show you that you're operating closer at hand than anyone in the Old Testament. All of you. Yes, I'm thankful, and yes, I bless the Lord, and yes, I'm humbled by being a star in His right hand. But I want to tell you something, and I've got to go ahead and give it away right now. You all are kings and priests before the Son of Man of the New Testament. You all get to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Him this day. You get to do what Solomon did in the Old Covenant this day. Every one of you. And there is no difference in offering those sacrifices, men and women. That is glorious. In that old covenant, you would have stood at such a distance, you'd have hardly seen the place. There were so many people. And you would have been a nobody. You'd have been lost in the crowd while Solomon got all the thrill and the glory of offering all those sacrifices. And yet today, I will show you that you are kings and priests in a temple and a house far greater than Solomon built. Amen. Where did the church come from? The Lord ordained it. Right. You say, that's so simple. Yes, it is. The gospel is simple. God gave us the church. But you know, we tend to think, and men tend to think, that men were sitting around a fire at some cave entrance someplace. And listen, our ancestors never lived in caves, except when pagans had chased them from their homes. God didn't create Adam so stupid that he had to live in a cave. But men think that, well, we have organizations for social functions. We have organizations for business functions. We have organizations for the promotion of trades. We have international organizations. Why? Someone just came up with another organization for religious things. And we call it a church. Forget all that. Men didn't sit around a campfire and dream up marriage. God ordained it. Men didn't sit around a campfire and dream up families. God ordained them. 
And men didn't dream up the idea of a church. It is from the Lord God himself. He has chosen men by his grace, pulled them out from the rest of the world, made them special, and they worshipped him, and he would come down and commune with them. Do you know how small that church has been at times? I know of one time where it was, it embodied everyone on planet earth, but it was only eight strong. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he got off that ark, and what did he do? He built an altar and offered a sacrifice to the Lord God. The church was small then, but it was everyone on earth. And it can be small, but God still will dwell with the men he has chosen. He didn't care about the rest, did he? They all drowned in the flood, every single one of them. But there were eight that were his, and they were his jewels, and he loved them. Now this God that has ordained the church has established the rules for it. And we have them written down for us. And I thank God I live in the New Testament, don't you? For those of you that are reading your Bibles through from the beginning to the end, you you are working yourself through the first five books of the Bible. And what if we had to obey every one of those rules? I'm thankful for the New Testament. It is simple compared to the book of Leviticus. And I hope you're thankful for that. And our God does not like alterations or innovations to his church. He told Moses, whatsoever thing I have commanded you, observe to do it. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. Jesus Christ didn't sound much different in Matthew chapter 28 when he said all things, go and teach all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the same thing. All the things, don't leave any out whatsoever I have commanded you. Don't add, don't take away anything from it. Don't add anything to it. The Lord created the church. The church is a group of people that God has chosen that separate themselves from the rest of the world, and he comes and dwells with them and meets with them and teaches them, and they worship and adore and serve him. That is a church. And it's a glorious concept. It's his design. The Lord chooses those that will make up his church. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As soon as we take one step in our minds to think that a church is just an organization for religious purposes, then we also feel that we have the liberty to alter it any way that we wish. But it's not that way. God ordained it, and God has established the rules for the church. And all we're we're looking at right at the moment is, Where did the church come from? We've defined it. Where did it come from? God created the church. He is not worshipped by loners. He is not worshipped by men who think that they can worship him without a congregation. When there's a congregation available to be worshipped in, he is not impressed. And he doesn't allow it. Because all that is is the vain imaginations of a man who wants to worship worship God according to his own mind and do that which is right in his own eyes instead of humbling himself before the word of God and submitting himself to others in a congregation, which is what the Lord has called us to. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, I read this in verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, 
because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." There's Moses describing to Israel how they became a church. God chose them. And he chose them because he loved them. And he chose them to be his special people above all peoples of the earth. Not because they were more in number, but because they were fewest in number. And we come over to the New Testament. And we look there on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We get to the last verse. And it says, And the Lord added to the church, Daily, such as should be saved. Have things changed? Still the same way. Except now we have Gentiles brought into that church, for which we ought to be very thankful. I can go to Acts chapter 15 and see the first great council of the New Testament church, where apostles and elders came together to consider how do we handle Gentiles being converted. And after there was some discussion, James stood up and took a prophecy out of the book of Amos, and said, God is rebuilding the tabernacle of David with Gentiles. And that is us, brethren. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18 that God hath set in the church those that pleased Him. When you look around in this assembly, when you take the directory and read down through it, look at all the names and think about them, Just remember, God chose them, and God put them in this assembly. It's not merely a human organization at all. The Lord chose, the Lord converts, the Lord regenerates, and the Lord brings them by His providence to form a congregation. How is it designed? We'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Lord gives us a few pictures of his church, so that we can get an idea of how he has designed it to work. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have it described as a body. Amen. Now we've all, we all have bodies. Your bodies are made up of various members. Amen. You've got members you value highly. Amen. Your eyes with which you see, your ears with which you hear, and your mouth with which you speak. We have a nose. We don't value it as highly, but eating would not be pleasant without your nose. And all the beautiful smells that God has created wouldn't be pleasant without your nose. We've got parts of our body that are covered with clothes. Do you know why they're covered with clothes? Because God told us to cover them, but he also tells us that they are the uncomely members of our body. If you subscribe to the philosophy of the 20th century, the parts that wear clothing are the comely parts, but that's not what the Lord God says. We cover the uncomely parts with clothes and make them more comely with their adorning. You know, I see all you have your feet covered. You know, we've all got twisted toes, bent toes, short toes, webbed toes, etc. But we cover them with expensive shoes, not just to protect the soles of our feet, but because we cover the comely parts. And hopefully those of you who've read your Bibles and remember past teaching know that I'm referring to a function of the New Testament church. More honor 
and more glory and more effort is to be applied to those that are less comely in order to give them more comeliness. And so together, there can be a church that functions like a body. We have hands and we have feet. They do different things, but they're both necessary. For an efficient body, a body that can get a lot done, all parts better be working well. If the heart isn't working well, the whole body's usually in bed. I have two this day, by the choice of God, that are very ill with the flu and try desperately to come between having the flu. But they're not here this day. A little tiny bug in part of that body renders the whole body pretty worthless. You know what it's like when you have the flu. But here we have it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Here it's described as a body. It's like a family in its structure. The Old Testament was called the house of Israel, the congregation of Israel, or the church that's in the wilderness, if you look at the New Testament. It's called the household of God in another place. The Apostle Paul treated it like a family, and he said that a minister had better treat it like a family. Because in effect, it is. It has children, it has a father, a spiritual father that teaches, and together they are to work together for their own perfection and the glory of God. Amen. It's like a temple. Look at chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now I rejoice at reading and meditating on what Solomon did with that temple for the Lord. But when we come to the New Testament, we have another temple. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we have these words. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, Know ye not. This is not a pastoral epistle. This is addressed to a group of members that made up the church at Corinth. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. This is not 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I mean, or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the temple of God is your body. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the temple of God is you. Amen. Ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So it's called a temple. We actually make up a house in which God comes to dwell in a New Testament church. It was put to me this way once, and I remember questioning that. But as you read the Word of God, and as you consider what I just described it as a body, a family, a temple, a house, a place of God's abode, did you know that the church of Jesus Christ, and think about these words carefully, though they're not scriptural, they help you get the sense of these Bible words, the church of Jesus Christ is not an organization, it's an organism. Right. An organism is a living thing. An organization is a dead structure. An organism is a living thing. We are the body of Jesus Christ. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. When we think of a house... We usually think of something that's dead because we use dead sticks and dead stones to build that house. 
But in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told something about the house of the New Testament church. Solomon made the house for God with dead sticks and dead stones, dead gold. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read in verse 4, To whom coming, as unto a, this is coming to Jesus Christ, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That is a description of the New Testament church. You are a holy priesthood by which we are able to come to God directly in this congregation and worship Him and offer up sacrifices acceptable. But notice, we've got a living cornerstone and we are living stones, therefore, it's an organism. Right. It's a living thing. Amen. It's not just an organization. And brethren, if the Spirit of God leaves it, it is then a dead thing. Because the Bible tells me that the body without the Spirit is dead. But with the Spirit animating it, what a body it can be. What a difference between a living body and a dead body. That's why there is so much consternation to our minds when we go to a funeral and look in that casket and see that person there that we have seen fully animated on so many occasions, and it no longer is. Because the Spirit has left its house. The Spirit has left its body. And so the body is dead without that animating Spirit, and a church without the Spirit is the same way. But with the Spirit, it is fully animated to accomplish all that God ever intended and to be a living house for Him to dwell in. Right. Amen. I'm going to pass. I wanted to, I wanted to deal with a number of points about the church, but there's, I want to deal with the one I, we came for this morning, and that's its glory. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Why did I start off with 1 Kings 8? Because when that Ark of the Covenant was set down... Remember, there were already cherubim in there that Solomon had already had beautiful gold cherubim built with their wings facing in toward each other, which left a little spot for that Ark of the Covenant to rest. When those priests brought it in and set it down, pulled the staves and walked out, the glory of the Lord filled that place because God was going to dwell in it. But we just read in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. I believe that with the word pictures created by the words of 1 Kings chapter 8, you would be and you are in awe of the temple that Solomon built. But the church of Jesus Christ of the New Testament should put us in as much awe right. or more. more. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And this morning we shall sign covenants. Yours is not so fearful to sign. It's all duties that you have known before and add very little. They add some to your responsibilities as members of this congregation, but I shall sign one that puts me under the full weight of verse 17 of this chapter. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy 
for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That is purely 100% a ministerial verse, because 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a ministerial chapter dedicated to Apollos, Cephas, and other builders, because if you go back to verse 12, you'll find out who Paul is addressing, but the ministers that were in that church. Now, if any man build, he's talking about builders. But I want to show the glory of the New Testament church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. To consider that the glory of the Lord filled the house of Solomon so that the priest couldn't even go in there is a glorious thought. The Lord did come down. The Lord sent fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifices that Solomon put on his great altar. <coughs> Now I read in verse 19 about Gentiles at Ephesus. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Those four verses tell us poor Gentiles that God has chosen us out now, made us fellow citizens and heirs of the kingdom that was once purely Jewish, and he, he is building us together for a house for him to dwell in. The New Testament church, this assembly this day, this group of people that God has saved by His Son Jesus Christ and called out of this world is a dwelling place for the Most High God. Amen. So that when we read about Solomon's temple, we know that God dwells among us as He did that temple. Right. When we read about Jesus, the Son of Man, walking among the seven golden candlesticks, this congregation is one of those candlesticks. Amen. And Jesus Christ wants entrance into our church so that we might have fellowship together. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the glory of the church. The church is a group of people, not just that come together to learn doctrine, not just that come together to worship God, not just that come together to exhort and to provoke one another to love and to good works, but they come together because in their coming together, and in their mutual submission to one another, they form a building that God dwells in. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a glorious verse. We usually read that verse in the middle of a context of dealing with separation from the world. But what I want to get out of that verse is that ye are the temple of the living God. Amen. As a church, you are the temple of the living God. Therefore, to have practices connected with paganism is high offense against him. But notice what he said. God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where did he say that? But in the book of Leviticus. But the Apostle Paul, 
and I'm thankful for the example that I have so that I can take boldness with the word of God, reaches all the way into Leviticus, pulls it all the way to the church of Corinth, and applies a statement made back then to the church that was in the wilderness and applies it to a New Testament church. I will walk among them. How many of you this morning want to walk with God? One of the ways, the chief way of the New Testament in which we walk with God is to walk with Him through the church. That is the glory of the church. I will walk in them. And I will dwell in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The New Testament church is glorious in that it is a temple that God lives in. It is beyond. You have no, you have not seen one aspect of creation. You believe that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his mouth by faith. And what I am telling you right now is must be believed by faith that this little assembly in this obscure place is where God dwells. Praise his holy name. It makes the church glorious because God is there. Look at first Timothy chapter three, first Timothy chapter three. We are looking at what makes the church of Jesus Christ glorious. And what makes it glorious is God dwells in it. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote to Timothy and told him, in verse 14, he said these things, writing unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. It's the house of God. Right. So I'm moving from the word temple to the word house. The word house can refer to a building so that we're back at the, at the concept of a temple where that God dwells in. Or it's a family also, the house of Aaron, the house of Jacob, the house of Abraham, referring to his descendants and servants and a group of people again that make up a place where God dwells. And we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 that there's a living cornerstone and there are living stones built on that cornerstone so that we become a living organism that God indwells. Amen. It's glorious. Amen. But there is a tendency, and the tendency is because of our flesh, to go through the motions of merely assembling with people and thinking that it's we, we come together to sing, we come together to exhort one another, to share and rejoice with one another, to weep with those that weep, to hear preaching, and all of those things are true. But all of those things are not the chief glory of the New Testament church. The chief glory is His presence. And He can withdraw His presence. And without His presence, it is a dead organization. God, save us from such a cursed and wretched situation. Amen. Look over at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul at times had lengthy sentences because he'd get started on a point like what he prayed for for the Ephesians and he just couldn't end it quickly because he had a lot of things that he prayed for for the Ephesian saints. And if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a period at the end of the chapter 
But you've got to go all the way up to the beginning of verse 15 to find the beginning of that sentence. They are things that he's praying for the Ephesians to know. And I only want one of them. Although the rest are glorious too, I want to come down to verse 22, where it says that God hath put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. And God hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. Those two verses in themselves are enough to entertain our souls for a good while. They are so full. God hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. To the church. Do you know what our head is this morning? Our head is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is head over all things to the church. Does that make this church glorious? That our head is head over all things? Why, the Pope that the Church of Rome has is on his last legs. I don't even know if he can stand anymore without help. He's so frail and fragile because he's just a man. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of all things to the church. Our head has been exalted high above everything to the church. What should the church fear? He's the head of all things, which is his body. What is his body? The church is his body. Let's think now. Do you all have a head? Is your head without your body a body? Is your head without your body much at all? No, it isn't. Your head better be connected to your body or you've got severe problems. Which is his body. Jesus Christ is the head. This is a word picture chosen by the Holy Spirit for us to have an idea of the organism of the New Testament church. We are the body of Jesus Christ and he is the head. He is operating and directing all the members of that body, but the body makes him complete because this verse says the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That is glorious. That is almost beyond recognition by a human mind that the church of Jesus Christ is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ is God. He fills all in all, but Jesus Christ without his church is incomplete because God has predestinated him and predestinated him to have brothers like unto him, and to build up and to fill up a church for Jesus Christ. Now that's the church universal, if we want to call it that, of all the redeemed family of God. But the Ephesian saints were the church of Jesus Christ. We already read it in chapter 2, the last few verses, that they were the temple of God, that he dwelt in them, that they alone by themselves were a habitation of God through the Spirit. Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord, is incomplete without us. And He's chosen to be that way. God chose it to be that way. Because His redeemed family that He shall assemble, every single one of them He shall lose, not one of them, that He will assemble before God and present to God is His fullness. 
That is why Jesus Christ was ordained to save that church and to present it before Jesus Christ, before the throne of God. It's glorious. Amen. It is his body. Look at chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If we were to begin at verse 22, we would have from verse 22 to verse 33 a description of marriage and the responsibilities inherent in marriage for the wives and for the husbands. But intermingled in those verses, Ephesians 5, 22 through 23, we have constant references that the apostle makes to the Lord and his church. He'll say something that husbands owe their wives, and then he compares the Lord to the church. Then he'll say what the wives owe their husbands and what the church owes the Lord. And Paul comes down to verse 30 and he says this, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You say, I don't understand that. And I say to you, I don't understand that fully either. But I understand it as much as he wants me to understand it. We are his body, and without it, he's incomplete. A man without a wife is incomplete. And Jesus Christ without his church is incomplete. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And could the Spirit of God told us, in any plainer language, how intimately important and glorious the church is to Jesus Christ? How would he have done it? To say that we are his flesh and his bones? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. Yes, Paul, we agree. It is a great mystery about being the flesh and bones of Jesus Christ. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then he goes on in verse 33 to continue the exhortation to the women. But there is in the picture of marriage... And there is in this instruction, in these verses, the fact that we are the flesh and bones of the Lord Jesus Christ in a mysterious relationship, a spiritual relationship, where we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And without us, he is incomplete. Not in his divine nature, in his human nature as the redeemer and the head of the church. Remember, God didn't have to exalt himself above all things. God has always been above all things. But God took the man Christ Jesus and exalted him above all things. And the man Christ Jesus, without all those for whom he died, and without all those for whom he has chosen out of this world to be his special people and to be his dwelling place, without them, he is incomplete. We are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The words themselves hardly make sense. Because if he fills all in all, how can we be his fullness? We must say with Psalm 144 and verse 3, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Did you see in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we all offer up spiritually acceptable sacrifices to God? That you're a holy priesthood? Every one of you. Turn now to Revelation chapter 1 again. Let's see that point Repeated that you all are kings and priests. Why did Solomon get to offer the sacrifices? Because he was king. Who else helped Solomon offer sacrifices? The priests. 
if you weren't a king or a priest, did you get to participate? Just an observer. But look what we have in the New Testament. The church is glorious. My God and your God comes to this room and meets with us. And he says in verse one, verse 6 of chapter 1, that Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He has made us kings and priests. You are as Solomon. You are as Aaron. You can come before God in this assembly. You don't have to be way out on the other side of the fence watching as they disappear from sight to go into the temple to offer up a sacrifice for you, that way has been opened up completely by Jesus Christ. And we all get to come together as kings and priests and offer up spiritually acceptable sacrifices to God. And He dwells among us. And you serve Him as the kings and priests did of the Old Testament. It's glorious. The church is glorious. It is not just a social organization for religious purposes. It is the body of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us the same thing. In verse 9 we read, Thou art worthy, speaking of the Lamb of God, to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For verse 10 says, And thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, I read a few minutes ago from Revelation chapter 1, where the Son of Man is arrayed in all of His glory. And in His right hand were seven stars representing the seven pastors of the seven churches of Asia, which represent all the pastors called by Christ of all the churches, including this church. And that Son of Man walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which we are told are the seven spirits of God, And yet we know there is but one Spirit of God, and yet He divides Himself up in order to be with each church individually. The seven candlesticks, which are the seven spirits of God. The figurative language that John saw, the figurative pictures that John saw of God's dealings with His churches. Seven candlesticks, representing those churches. When a candlestick is withdrawn from a church, what is withdrawn? The oil that makes that candlestick burn, which is the spirit of the living God, is taken out of that church. So what is the end of a church of Jesus Christ? What is the end of the Greenville church? Is it going to be to have a candlestick withdrawn, leaving us dead? God help us. Or is it going to be that we ought to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and comfort ourselves with these words? Can the Lord preserve us? Can the Lord bless us? Will the Lord dwell among us until Jesus Christ returns from earth to receive us unto Himself? Returns to earth to receive us unto Himself. That's the glory of the church. Brethren, this day, it is not enough for us to know the Word of God. It is not enough for us to know that we ought to assemble here every Lord's Day. It's not enough for us to sing to one another. It's not enough for us to exhort one another. 
It's not enough for us to do the duties that we're about to commit to, to one another. We want the presence of the Lord in this temple. Amen. And that is something we must seek individually and collectively as a church and beg God to dwell among us. Amen. Now, one brother yesterday sent by email to a number of you the blessed time that he had in reading Isaiah 58. And for those of you who read Isaiah 58, you found three words there Amen. that were very comforting and very encouraging to those that are seeking Him. In Isaiah 58, if we have a fast of righteousness and seek the Lord, the Lord will say to us, Here I am. Amen. It's glorious. Amen. Right. Here I am. And I see in Revelation 3.20 that He stands at the door of the churches and asks for entrance to come in. He is willing to come into His church and to have personal and congregational fellowship with us. Because without Him, we are, we are going through the motions. It is a body with strings attached to its arms and its hands and its feet going through the motions. We want to be animated by the Spirit of God. Amen. That is the glory of the church. Solomon, he was but a king. The priests, they were but priests. You all are kings and priests. And he has chosen to indwell us and walk among us and be our God and we shall be his people. May the Lord bless us by his spirit. I can only tell you. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But God must make in your hearts the things that I've said true to your spiritual understanding that you can believe that God indwells his church because that's the glory of it. Without it, we have no glory. With Him, we have all the glory of the glorious God Himself, and nothing can be too hard for us. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.